Father, thank you. Thank you for First Peter. Thank you for um, guiding by your Spirit, uh, Peter, to write these words to these churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, to encourage them, to equip them, uh, to put Jesus on display in the way they relate to the people in the places you put them. Um, and to be willing to suffer as they do it while they entrust their souls to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Um, I pray, God, that this morning you would um, help us to finish well. Um, By your spirit, speak to your people. Help us to trust Jesus more because we have been um, sitting under your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the original Pirates of the Caribbean movie, there is a point in the movie when Captain Barbosa holds the fair maiden Elizabeth captive on his ship, the Black Pearl. At a dinner... For just the two of them on board the ship, Barbosa relates the tale of how he and his crew and his ship uh, were all cursed by the heathen gods, as he called them, to a living death because they stole the cursed Aztec gold. Sometime during the tale that he was telling, an unimpressed Elizabeth stubbornly replied to him, I hardly believe in ghost stories anymore, Captain. Moments later, Elizabeth stabbed Barbosa in the chest with a knife, and all he did was pull the knife out, kind of laugh at her, and continue on his way as if it had no, uh, no effect whatsoever. This seemed strange and rather frightening to Elizabeth, as it should have. Cue the tense music. Barbosa begins to back Elizabeth out of the room She backs out of the room into the night air and the moonlight on the deck of the ship. And she looks around and she sees all the pirates have turned to skeletons. And Barbosa says, look, the moonlight shows us for what we truly are. Instead of men, she sees skeletons dressed as pirates. And so as she turns back to face Barbosa, He steps into the moonlight and becomes a skeleton himself and says, You'd best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. You're in one. I love that movie. (laughs) Uh, I just like saying that. Uh, This is the message that Peter has for us this morning. We tend to live as if we hardly believe there's an unseen spiritual world of darkness at work anymore. But today, Peter wants us to step into the light of the truth of God's word so that we can see we're living in a a world filled with the forces of darkness. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, 
you best start believing in ghost stories, church, because you're in one. Friends, your story has a villain. You have an enemy. And it's always been this way. It's the reason why we flock to movies like The Avengers and The Lord of the Rings and Pirates of the Caribbean, like Cinderella, Aladdin, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. They're all stories about what evil has done to pervert what was once good and innocent in the world and about what it must take for that good to be restored. C.S. Lewis once wrote in Mere Christianity, he said, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity believes the universe is at war. Of all the things Peter could say to conclude his letter to the churches, he chose to say, wake up church, you're at war. And you have to remember, this is the Peter to whom Jesus said on the night before Jesus was crucified, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. If you know anything about the way they would sift wheat, is they'd put the wheat in this large flat basket and they would shake it violently and then toss the wheat into the air to let the wind blow the chaff away. When Jesus said, Satan demands to have you and to sift you like wheat, he was telling Peter, Satan has asked for my permission to shake you violently, and it's coming tonight. And we all know that Peter denied Jesus three times, as Jesus predicted. So when Peter wrote, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he was not kidding. One of the members of our church wrote to me just this week and asked that the elders would specifically pray for young families because this person is convinced that the young Christian families in our church are being targeted by the evil one. And they are. All of you are. All of us are. And why is our adversary the devil prowling around seeking to devour, devour us? Because he lost, and now he is livid. That's why. So, but what does that mean? He lost, and he's livid, so now he's out to devour us. Revelation 12, I invite you to read that this afternoon, right before your nap. Revelation 12 describes the war that has raged in the unseen world and how it impacts us and how it impacts even young moms and dads in our church. Listen to what uh, John described that he saw. This is a description of the history of the unseen battle. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, 
but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan lost and he's livid. He knows his time is short. He lost his battle to take over the throne of God and instead was thrown to the earth where he now prowls around like a roaring lion to do what? Revelation 12, 17 goes on to describe what he's up to. Then the dragon became furious and went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He went off to make war with those who follow Jesus. Why, why us? God was his problem. Why is he mad at us? Here's why. If the devil can't steal, kill, or destroy the glory of God itself, the original glory of God, then his next best tactic is to try to steal, kill, and destroy those who reflect the glory of God. If you can't, if you can't destroy the original, then re- re- destroy all those mirrors that are around reflecting the original to the world. Smash them. That's us. That's what he's up to. Peter has been telling us over and over again to put Jesus on display in the way we love people like Jesus loves people, in the places we worship, work, live, and play. Peter has told us that God is using all of the trials in our lives to purify us like a a refiner of, of fine metals purifies gold until he can see his reflection in the gold. We were created and redeemed to reflect the glory of Jesus in the way that we humbly serve like Jesus. So we're the reflectors. If he can't destroy God, the original glory, he will go after all of those whom God created and redeemed to reflect his glory in the universe. That's what he's after. He will do whatever it takes to deface, diminish, and destroy the glory of Jesus in you and in me. So friends, we've got to wake up. Be sober-minded, Peter says. Be watchful. What does that mean? I, I was reading this. I was thinking about we're, we're in a war. I was thinking about being sober-minded and being watchful. So I contacted my resident warfare combat expert, Jim West. And I, and I shared this. I said, this is what Peter is saying. Help, help us as a church understand what, what that might look like. And 
So I want to read to you what Jim said because it's it's beautiful. It's brilliant. Jim, who served with the Marine Corps in Iraq in combat, said this. He said, when a Marine is on patrol in hostile territory, which he says is actually the same as living as an exile, like we've been talking about, when a Marine is on patrol in hostile territory, watchfulness is critical to survival, but you cannot be watchful if you're not sober-minded. Sober-mindedness in a combat zone is synonymous with understanding that you're not at home and understanding that most of the people around you either don't want you there or outright want to kill you, and some of them have the means, not just the desire, to kill you. Therefore, every day, normal things all become potential sources of death, he said. Sober-mindedness allows us to stare this death in the face, know it for what it is, and prepare appropriately. This is called situational awareness. He says, knowing your environment and being aware of danger while maintaining the capability and poise to meet it head on. Knowing your environment, the location and status of your weapon, your buddies and your ammunition is all critical to survival. And you and your buddies are relying on each other to maintain this situational awareness. So you're in combat, and Peter says, be sober-minded, be aware of yourself, your surroundings, your buddies, your weapons, your enemy. Jim goes on to say, watchfulness, then, takes this to the next level. Imagine this. He says, instead of walking down a street being aware of what's immediately in front of you, you now have to have a running data stream processing continuously. It's, it's like true 3D vision of where every window, every window on every story of every building presents an opportunity for death. Where a valley between two ridge lines is a killing field with death lurking on every ridge. This data stream becomes continuous, a continuous calculation of ranges, how far, away, how far things are, are away, calculation of people. Is that a fat dude or is it a normal dude wearing a suicide vest? That four-story apartment building is 700 meters out. Will, will we need the heavy guns to engage if we take sniper file, fire? Uh, but then that storefront is only 200 meters, so we can engage them with M4s, but we'll need to watch at our 3 o'clock because that's an alley over there, and fire can come out from there at any time. It's just a running stream of conscious awareness, he said. Be watchful, Peter said. Keep your eyes open. Be awake and on the alert. Be in constant readiness. Be sober-minded and be watchful. You're in a war. Be sober-minded, Peter says. Don't be intoxicated. Be sober. Don't Netflix yourself into numbness with stories that are smaller than the story of Jesus you've been called to live in. Don't get drunk on glory that is less than the glory of Jesus that Jesus shares with you. Don't satisfy the thirst of your soul with pleasures that are weaker than the pleasures of knowing and being known by the God of the universe. Don't let your heart long for loves and lovers that are less than the love of Jesus, who is the lover of your soul. Be sober-minded. Don't be intoxicated by all that you see around you. And be watchful. Be awake and on the alert. Be in constant readiness. Assume you are under attack because you are. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, the dev- to devour, which begs the question, how does the devil devour people? I think we go all the way. He hasn't changed his tactics. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve and ask, how did he go after them to devour them? He said to them, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which is not what God said. God said all of these trees are for you except that one. But listen to what the devil said. Did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Already casting doubt on God's generosity. No, Eve said, just that one tree. If we eat from it, we'll die. Oh, silly human. The snake snickers. (laughs) You will not die. The truth is, God is holding out on you. He knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll have something that he has. He's not as generous as you would like to think he is. Not as good as he would have you believe. With that thought, Eve looks at the fruit on the tree and she says, hmm, it does look like it would be good for food. It is a delight to the eyes. And it's desirable to make me wise. Hmm. See there. The serpent says, if God is good and this fruit looks good, why would he withhold it from you? Perhaps he's not as good as you think he is. Hmm? He hasn't changed his tactics, folks. To this day, this is how the enemy works. The enemy's target is your heart, your faith, your trust in the heart of God. The aim of evil is to get you to disbelieve that God's heart towards you is good. If your faith, if your trust in God, your dependence on him is good for you and glorifies God, then the enemy wants to destroy your faith, your trust in his heart. Because the enemy does not want good for you, and he certainly does not want glory for God. Remember, we said that 1 Peter 4.19 is, is, encapsulates all that Peter is trying to tell us the life of an exile looks like. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If that's what the life of God's people is to look like, that we suffer while doing good, and we entrust our souls to our faithful creator, then where the enemy wants to attack is that part that says, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. That's what he wants to get at. Because if you don't believe that God is a faithful creator in whom you can entrust your soul, you will not suffer for him, and you will not do good in his name. That's what he's after. He's after your faith. He's after your heart. He's after your trust. He's after your belief in the goodness 
of the heart of your God. So in your marriage, what he's really after is to get you to doubt the goodness of God. In your parenting, what he's really after is to get you to not trust God's heart towards you is good. In your singleness, in your pain, in your sickness, in your loneliness, in your addictions, the enemy's aim is to get you to doubt God's good heart toward you. That's what he's after. The enemy does not want you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, as Peter says. And so he gets you to focus on God's mighty hand of judgment, yes, but not on God's mighty hand of mercy and rescue and love that has a nail scar in it for you. He doesn't want you, the enemy doesn't want you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God's mercy. He just wants you to stay in the judgment part of God's mighty hand so that you will hate God and not trust him. The enemy doesn't want you to cast all your anxieties on God because you trust that he cares for you, as Peter talks about in verse 7. No, the enemy wants you to fixate on your cares, fixate on your cares, not on God's care for you. The enemy wants you to focus on why God hasn't met this or that need or solved this or that problem rather than remembering that if God cared enough for you to solve your biggest problem, which was you rebelled and were under his wrath, and if God cared enough for you to solve that big problem by meeting your greatest need, which was to be reconciled to God, and he did that through the gift of his son Jesus, if God cared about you that much, for the greatest need and the biggest problem you had, then he cares about you with every other problem and need you have. The enemy doesn't want you to think about that. He doesn't want you to cast all your worries on him, remembering that he cares for you. And the enemy does not want you to live with the hope that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Your enemy doesn't want you to have hope that one day God will restore you. That word is very important to Peter because it's the word that means to mend, and it's the word that they use to talk about mending fishing nets. When they get worn out and used up and holes all in them, the fishermen would mend them, restore them to their proper use. The devil doesn't want you to have hope that one day, after you have suffered for a little while, that God is going to mend your worn out life and heart. He doesn't want you to hope that. But the (laughs) The great thing is that those three things are the very reasons that you can trust that God's heart toward you is good. You can trust that his heart toward you is good 
because of his mighty hand of mercy. You can trust that God's heart for you is good because he cared so much for you that he gave his only son. You, you can trust the heart, toward, the heart of God towards you is good because of his promise of hope that he will one day restore you forever. I love, on the front of your bulletin, I put this quote because I think I need to hear it, and you do too. (coughs) The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth answers once and for all the question, what is God's heart toward you? At the point of our deepest betrayal, our betrayal of Jesus, when we had run our farthest from him and had gotten so lost we could never find our way home, God came and died to rescue us. You have never been loved like this. You have never been loved like this. He has come to save you in every way a person can be saved. That is God's heart toward you. And that's the last thing your enemy wants you to believe and trust. So now what? Now Peter says, Live a life of resistance now while you wait for your restoration then. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. He says, resist the devil, firm in your faith. And This is what I visualized in my mind. If someone's coming after me, I want to get myself ready to resist whatever they're bringing. I ain't no wrestler, I ain't no boxer, and I ain't no Iron Man, but this is what I imagine happens. You plant your foot, you plant yourself, you're ready to resist. In order to resist and push back on the enemy, you've got to have your feet planted in what? Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. And that's not, don't hear me say that your subjective faith, the, the strength of your faith, the, the amount of your faith is what you stand on. No, it's the faith. That is yours. The faith, the gospel, the good news that Jesus has defeated this enemy. He's defeated the sin that caused you to be his enemy at one time. The good news of the gospel is the faith he's talking about. Stand firm in that truth as you then resist this one who is trying to convince you that that truth is not real, that God's heart toward you is not good. So friends, this is why we need to continue as a church to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. This is, again, why we come to this table every week. Because this is what we need to stand firm in. This is proof that the heart of God toward you is good, no matter what it looks like on the outside in your world. The enemy can bring his onslaught. But the word of God and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper tell us again and again and again 
God's heart towards you is good. God's heart towards you is good. He loves you. He loves you. And so I close with this beautiful quote from Martin Luther. He says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you have proven in Jesus that your heart toward us is good and that the liar, the devil, can just... (laughs) And he will. Because death is destroyed. Sin is defeated. Satan is doomed. And this table reminds us of the cross that made it all possible, that made it all real. This table reminds us that your heart toward us is good and that even the attacks of the enemy refine us. He's attacking us because we display the glory of Jesus in the way we live our lives. But even those attacks refine us so that we display Jesus even more. So the joke's on him. Thanks be to God. In Jesus Christ, we have the victory. Amen.